0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: We have the right to work in an environment free from the ever-present terror that any unverified student allegation of racism or any other ism has the power to crush our reputations, ruin our livelihood, and even endanger the physical safety of ourselves or our family members. That should just be obvious, but it isn't, and nobody's talking about this.
2: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan K. That voice you just heard belongs to Jody Shaw, a student support coordinator at Smith College, an elite private liberal arts women's college in Northampton, Massachusetts. As a humble administrative worker, Miss Shaw has relatively little power and prestige on a campus where the typical professor makes $140,000 a year, the college president makes almost $600,000, and tuition and board cost about $70,000. But last week, Miss Shaw got the attention of everyone at Smith when she went public with long simmering complaints about the treatment of both clerical and blue collar staff by privileged students and a college president, Kathleen McCartney, who seems more interested in virtue signaling, as Miss Shaw describes it than in protecting her own workers from abusive behavior and false accusations. On Tuesday, Miss Shaw put her complaints on YouTube in a video titled Dear Smith College, I Have a Few Requests. We heard an excerpt from that in the opening segment. But when I spoke to her, it became clear that her frustrations, and those of her colleagues, seemed to go beyond the general complaints she makes on YouTube. As you will hear, the toxic atmosphere on Smith's campus originates in large part with a very public July 2018 allegation against a group of kitchen and custodial workers by a Smith student named Umu Kanuti. In a Facebook post that got picked up by national media at the time, Ms. Kanuti claimed that these workers had called campus security when they saw her in a dormitory living room merely because she's a black student on a mostly white campus. The claim set in motion a flurry of anti-racism manifestos, training sessions, and professional development modules that have continued into 2020. Meanwhile, the reputation of these kitchen and custodial workers were destroyed, with the president of the university herself sending out emails suggesting they were racists. But there was one problem with that narrative. In an exhaustive report commissioned by the university and delivered in October 2018, complete with witness testimony and abundant photos of the inside of the actual facility, two outside investigators concluded that there was actually no evidence of any racism at all. And yet the university never moved decisively to clear the names of the accused workers, nor to push back on Canuti's efforts to expose their identities publicly. To this day, in fact, at least one of these workers receives death threats, all because of a racist incident that simply never happened. On Sunday, I spoke to Jody Shaw about all of this and what her work life has become on a campus that Ms. Shaw describes as a place of fear and distrust behind a facade of social justice. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Can you explain what happened in the summer of 2018? It seems like it really amped up a lot of the stakes around race on campus.
1: What happened was on July 31st, 2018, a student worker who was working on campus at the time went into a dining hall on campus. During the summer, there are many programs on campus, and they, these programs get assigned to houses, and these houses have dining halls. And this particular student worker went into a dining hall that she was not assigned to. However, the dining staff in that dining hall recognized her as a student and said, oh, hey, there was a friendly greeting And the student took whatever food she wanted and she left, or the dining staff thought she left. And then the custodian of that house was closing up the house and he saw a person lying on a couch in the living room. They have pictures in the report of the the double glass doors he was looking through. There was a big teddy bear there and apparently he could not see much, but he saw that there was a human lying on the couch. And he was not even clear of the gender of the person. At the time, staff were being told, if you see something, say something, no matter how insignificant. So I think it's it was perfectly appropriate for him to call campus police, which is now known as campus safety, which he did. And campus police came. And ca- our campus police do not carry guns. I just want to clarify that. And apparently there was an exchange and the officer didn't find any issue and then the next day the, so the dining staff who had talked to the student in one staff in particular she had not seen the student again and not even really been aware that anything had been happening in the living room when the, the campus police had been called or anything she didn't even know what was going on until one day or two days after her friend called her and said you know you're on Facebook and this particular individual is not on Facebook and so when she found out that she had been accused of apparently telling the custodian to call campus police or something of that nature. And so the student published her information, her identity and said, this is the person who called campus police on me, or this is the person who instigated the call to campus police on me or incited the custodian and the student didn't know the identity of the custodian, and she tried to find the custodian. And she ended up posting another staff member's information online because she thought it was that staff member. And that staff member it turned out hadn't even been at work that day, but still received some pretty threatening mob-like behavior online. That's my understanding. Until the student finally said, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I, that actually was not the person." <laughs> She just still does not know the identity of the custodian, but she tried very hard to find out the identity so that she could post it on social media.
2: In the investigative report, it lists her demands that she wanted an apology. She seemed to want the university to shame these individuals. As the days went on, she also had other demands about reforming the curriculum and anti-racism training and that sort of thing. The national media got involved in this, the narrative that emerged was was this poor young black woman who was just going about her business in a university building. And these two evil white people sick the police on her. Is that the narrative that unfolded?
1: Oh, yeah. On campus, as a staff member, we immediately received a letter. We received two letters, one from Amy Hunter. Now, Amy Hunter is the compliance officer for the Smith College. It's the Office of Equity and Inclusion. So we, immediately we were issued these two letters, one from Amy Hunter, who's the compliance officer. She said, Smith College does not tolerate race or gender-based discrimination in any form. Such behavior can contribute to a climate of fear, hostility, and exclusion that has no place in our community. So we received that letter, and then we received another letter from the president. This incident has happened, and we will not tolerate racism on our campus. So it was immediately assumed that a racist incident had happened. And I want to point out that Smith College has a process for processing complaints of racial discrimination or harassment, so on and so forth, that this individual, this student, did not go through a formal complaint process.
2: Well, I have right here the president's letter, and this is August 2nd, 2018, two days after the non-incident took place, But, and I'll quote from it. This painful incident reminds us of the ongoing legacy of racism and bias in which people of color are targeted while simply going about the business of their daily lives. It is a powerful reminder that building an inclusive, diverse and sustainable community is urgent and ongoing work. I mean, this is the president, Kathleen McCartney. Sounds like she's judge and jury here. Did you get the impression that that this was a slam dunk racist incident?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, I did. I mean, that's pretty heavy language. And so everyone on campus was like, oh, this is so terrible. And how could this happen? And Smith has a lot of work to do. We believe that, or I did at the time.
2: They went out and they got experts to examine what happened in July 2018 during this incident. And they came out with this report, I believe it was in October. And the report is actually quite a stunning document because it concludes I'm going to read from the conclusion. The investigation did not find that the evidence was sufficient to show that the reported party, that's the student who was on the couch, was discriminated against with respect to the incident. The investigation did not find that the dining employee engaged in the behaviors complained of by the reported party. The investigation determined that the caller, this is the custodian, had a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for contacting the campus police. And then it goes on to say that the campus police behaved in an appropriate way. And also, in a very polite way, the authors of this report say that there were all kinds of discrepancies in the sort of things that the student put on social media. Her description of the conversation she had with dining staff was very dubious. She, at one point, talked about these officers having guns, whereas these were not municipal police officers. They were campus security who do not carry guns. One would think that this complete exoneration of these two staff workers... the school would be broadcast far and wide on campus is
1: that what happened no that's not what happened i believe the president released a letter urging us to read the report in in the entirety it's interesting because she starts her letter off and this is at the end of october by saying we are committed to an inclusive diverse and equitable community That commitment was tested last summer when a Smith employee called campus police about a student of color and questions were raised about whether the call and police response were motivated by racial bias. So she starts off the letter that way. And then she says, today, I write to share the conclusions and recommendations of an independent report into the events of July 31st so we can better understand what occurred, learn from the experience, take restorative action and chart our way forward together. And then she has a link to the report, and she goes on to say, the report's findings are important in two respects. First, they provide a foundation for potential reconciliation and healing. What, for those, what does that mean? For those,
2: the report showed that nothing racist, <laughs> nothing racist had happened. And here you have the president of the university, Kathleen McCartney. If you hadn't read the report, and very few people are going to read, it's over 100 pages, the report, and not to mention all the exhibits, which include three pictures of teddy bears. <laughs> reconciliation healing yeah the subtext is that something horrible happened we weren't able to nail Mm -hmm. the perpetrators on the letter of the law but there's a lot of racism here
1: yeah that sounds like the subtext here
2: But when this came out, did it change people's minds or had people simply moved on?
1: I think the atmosphere was still like, oh my gosh, there's so much racism and we have so much work to do. I mean, she even went on to open the, the Helen Hills Chapel for students and staff and faculty wanted to gather, to reflect, to share.
2: I saw that. Did, did anybody come to that? Because there was this long letter about how we need to come together and reflect, like the word reflection appeared a dozen times. Did people show up and reflect?
1: I don't know. I didn't go, <laughs> but it... But yeah, it's really interesting that she puts this. This is the letter to let us know what the conclusion of the investigation was. And the first five paragraphs are about this need to come together in reconciliation and healing. The message to me is that the college still believes this was a bias-related incident.
2: A week before this president's letter, which came out October ninth, 2018, Kathleen McCartney, the president of Smith, sent out a blast titled Employee Diversity and Bias Training announcing that the college has partnered with a third-party group to provide training on diversity and bias for staff and faculty. The training will cover issues of identity, power, and privilege, and will offer tools to promote a culture of respect. Culture of respect, I think we'll talk a little bit about that later. And it says, I recently completed the training and found it to be valuable. Again, all of this was set in motion by an incident that, as a report that would be published a week after this letter came out, showed that there was no racial bias at play at all. Some decision was made that this non-incident was going to be used to create this whole additional apparatus of anti-racism on campus.
1: Yeah, that is definitely the sense I get, all of this training, and then we had an entire day of inclusion on campus.
2: So what do you do during a day of inclusion?
1: Various workshops and activities and dialogues and discussions, and everyone had the option of taking the day off from work in order to attend these various events based on diversity and, and racial justice
2: it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog, and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Ewell Noel Harari but they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention The Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com. Dot com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now back to our podcast. January 30th, 2019. This is several months after a third-party report came out indicating there was no proof of any kind of racism that had taken place in July 2018. This is Kathleen McCartney, president, saying, as you know, a painful event led us to reassess and recommit to making Smith a place where each of us feels included and valued. What painful event? I mean, you could say it was painful in the sense that several blue-collar workers on campus had been falsely accused of racism. Did the president or Amy Hunter or anyone apologize for their role in smearing two blue-collar workers falsely accused of racism?
1: Uh, No, that's not what happened.
2: The weird thing here is, in normal organizational behavior, is that leaders of organizations put a smiley face in their organizations and say things are great. At Smith College, it seems like exactly the opposite. This unrelenting campaign to convince everybody that she is presiding over a hive of racism.
1: It's almost like we want there to be a big, big racist problem on campus councils were formed. I mean, we all had to do this bias training, which in my mind was a ridiculous training because it's now assumed that we all have bias and that the bias training will cure us of it. I normally try and keep it
2: together during these interviews, but this actually (laughs) makes me furious. I'm guessing the president of the university and Amy Hunter and all of these people, they're well-paid individuals. They seem to have just thrown these two, one is a dining worker, one is a custodial worker. These Mm -hmm. are working-class people, but it seems like the president of Smith was willing to throw them under the bus. uh, For what? To oppose a non-existent racist (laughs) incident? I went through the media trail, and... CNN covered it. Boston media covered it. In in all of the coverage, and again, again, this was in 2018, and it was before the truth came out in the report, it was all like she was a victim of racism. There was one side to it. I read one dissenting account of of what happened, which was published, it was in local media, and it was covering an open letter that was published by a woman named... Oh,
1: Tracy Culver Putnam.
2: That's right. And the letter basically set out what happened and said, look, this is ridiculous. And this was in January 2019, a couple of months after the report came out and saying, this is ridiculous. We're being smeared. You know, I know the people involved. It, it's basically set out in a more personal way some of the conclusions that were contained in the official report. She tried to get this published in another local publication and they refused?
1: She did try to publish it in the Hampshire Gazette, which is the local newspaper, and they refused. And I believe she followed up and said, you know, can you give me a reason why? And they did not respond. And you have to remember this is a small town and Smith College is a major driver of the local economy. They did later cover her letter after it had been published. There was also another dissenting. It was a columnist at the Boston Globe. He published an, an opinion piece. I think he called the racist incident that never was or something like that.
2: You know, every once in a while you do get a columnist who who is brave like that. But what's interesting is the way that reporters themselves, from what I've seen in incidents like this, they know that the hits they're going to get come from one side. And when the facts interfere with the narrative of white privilege, the story becomes more complicated and you can see how suddenly they stop returning calls.
1: It's very troubling that we're we're kind of losing all nuance. I find that troubling, especially at an elite liberal arts institution. I, I think for me, the thing that's most on my mind now is there were actually three employees involved or maybe four because she published the identity of someone who wasn't even there that day.
2: And how are these people doing it after being accused of being white supremacists?
1: The police officer involved no longer works for Smith College. Smith College had merged its police department with Mount Holyoke and he was let go, I think, in, in May, April or May. It was the spring after that. And I heard for unrelated reasons, but many people on campus. Suspect that it has something to do with this.
2: I think he was known as Officer Bob. Is that?
1: Yes, he was beloved.
2: And Smith is a small place. People know people. In fact, Officer Bob knew Umukunuti, which is one of the reasons the interaction was so friendly, as I understand it.
1: Yeah, he knew her. He recognized her. He's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, he was beloved on campus. One student in her graduation speech even mentioned him and thanked him for being part of the community. I mean, he'd been at Smith for 35 years. There's another staff member who was not even in the room. Remember, the student claims that there were two people kind of pacing around the dining staff worker and the custodian. And so the student continues to engage in behavior that I believe is injurious and harmful to this Dining staff member who actually was not in the room and had no knowledge of what was going on in the living room until the next day or a few days later when she found out it was on Facebook and that she was named. And so this person has continued this to this day. Whenever a video is released that goes viral of a black person being killed by a police officer, for example, she still gets phone calls telling her that she should be dead and she gets notes thrown in her car. This is real damage. This is a person who is now on furlough and is the head of her household. And she is being continued to be harassed because of the students' relentless social media campaign and because of Smith's refusal to correct that narrative and in fact, just pour more gasoline on it with all these initiatives and helping to stoke the assumption that this was a horrible racist incident, that to me, it's one of the biggest moral failings I've ever been privy to in my life.
2: The custodial worker who noticed there was someone in a room where they shouldn't have been in a facility that was closed and that would have children in it under a school program, that that custodial worker, the caller, this is a blue-collar worker. I just looked up Some university president salaries. And there's an article in 2018. It looked at presidents of America's private colleges and universities. Quote Smith College president Kathleen McCartney earned the most in total compensation in 2016 at $568,449. Does your annual salary approach $600,000? Because that would be awesome if everyone was making $600,000. It
1: would. <laughs> yeah, it would be really awesome. No, I'm actually shocked by that figure. I, Wow.
2: And Maybe she took a massive pay cut since then in recognition of her privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Some people call me conservative in my politics. I interview a lot of liberals, a lot of progressives. You're an employee at Smith College. I think you're an alumnus of Smith College. I am, yeah. I'm guessing you're not like a Breitbart reader, or like a huge Donald Trump supporter. (laughs) The climate on campus is really progressive, which is fine. Elite colleges historically have had a very progressive. But part of being a progressive has meant standing up for the little guy or the little woman, people who don't have a lot of money or power. Here you have somebody making almost $600,000 broadcasting the false claims of a student, and who knows what she's endured in life, but she was a student at an elite college on a sofa looking at an iPad. And that person's account, even after being essentially debunked, was used to smear a blue collar worker doing his job. I mean, he had been told to call campus security if there was anything that was out of order. If, if you see something, do something, was the instructions they were given.
1: How is that progressive? <laughs> it's definitely not progressive, and that is why, partially why I felt the need. I had to start speaking out.
2: I invited you on this podcast to interview you, and now you're just, you have to listen to all these little speeches I'm giving you. But I'm a privileged person. I'm not the first person in my family who went to university. I was able to go to Yale for, for law school, and one thing that I saw there was at one point the black students in law school... They organized on behalf of the custodial workers there because they saw the custodial workers were getting paid crap money. And most of these custodial workers at the time were black. A lot of them were getting very poor wages. They were treated badly. And that made total sense to everyone that you have students taking a principled stand on behalf of people who lack privilege in our society. Yes, because of race, but also because they're working class people who don't make a lot of money in a school environment full of privileged, spoiled brats like me
1: and and that that's gone out the window it seems. I hear zero discussion or concern on the part of class issues. I have heard people on campus complaining that while the faculty representation of different skin colors is improving that we need to work on diversifying the staff, which is code for more people who are not white on the staff to represent the student body better, which to me is, it's laughable because (laughs) at Smith, we live in an area that's very white. And so the population that we are pulling from for those positions are, we're going to have mostly white staff. Faculty, you are flying in for multi-day interviews and paying boatloads of money to, to come and move and live here. But you're not doing that with staff. So it really, that's kind of a ridiculous ask, I think. And I'm not sure why we would even need to do that. Because this is a white area students come to school here. This is, happens to be a white area. It's just reality. It's not a secret.
2: I'm looking here at the salary information for Smith College professors, Smith college is in North, Northampton, Massachusetts, where I think maybe your money goes a little farther than if you're living in Boston. The average salary for a professor seems to be close to hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. I think there's a lot of people who would be very inclined to move to Northampton, Massachusetts for one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. What does a typical entry level admin worker at Smith College? I would make?
1: say it's probably forty thousand between 35 and forty thousand dollars.
2: The salary that entry- level admin are making is substantially less than the tuition at Smith which is about I think $54,000 is that correct?
1: Yeah and then you add in room and board it's over 70000
2: Money is only part of the issue in a workplace. It sounds like especially since 2018 entry-level staff of whatever skin color are terrified that a single complaint from a student whether substantiated or not can end their career at Smith. Is this a fear that you've heard from from your colleague?
1: <laughs> yes, it is. And I actually heard one, I won't name the the housekeeper. We have affinity houses on campus, which are for, one is for black students and the other is for students of color.
2: I'm from Canada where we don't do this nonsense, <laughs> but does that mean racially segregated housing? The
1: college has made it known that anybody can apply to live in one of these houses And I actually inquired about this to my supervisor because I was a little confused. I said, Can anybody apply for these to move in these houses? And she said, Yes. I said, So a white person can apply? And she said, Well, yes, but the white person would have to explain why they could support black culture or something. It doesn't really make sense. And I think the college is really counting on white guilt for white students to kind of segregate themselves away from those houses.
2: Because I'm not in this environment, it's just so weird to me because as I was doing my research, Umu Mm Kanute, who was the student who who complained of what she called racist treatment in that July incident, part of her demands, she talked about how her treatment was part of the legacy of segregation, which we need to dismantle. But then in the next breath, she's talking about more affinity housing, which is essentially segregated housing. (laughs) This is just so weird to me. It's
1: very weird. It's very weird. Sometimes I feel like I'm I just started feeling like I was going crazy because it on the surface, everyone is saying this one thing, but inside I'm thinking that doesn't make sense. You know, that there's no logic here. It's much closer to a religion in that sense. You're just supposed to go with it and believe it.
2: This episode of the Quillette podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high protein, low carb solution for people who love their cereal, but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free... Grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, go to magicspoon.com slash quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code QUILLETTE with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Quillette and use the code Quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now, back to our podcast. Speaking of religion, let's talk a little bit about religious ceremonies, because I have heard, as part of this avalanche of anti-racism efforts, that staff were told to go to these, I don't know what to call them, sessions that were run by a third party in which they were instructed to confess their privilege and tell everybody in the room about their whiteness. Have you heard about that? Yeah,
1: well, I've I've definitely heard of it. I've been to them. I was told that I would have to attend a professional development retreat and the first day of this retreat would be devoted toward discussing our identities. Now at Smith, identities means social identity. And so I I said, will I be expected to discuss my identity? And I was told, yes, you will. So I went to my director and I, after everything that's happened on this campus, I didn't say that, but inside I'm thinking the last thing I want to talk about with all of these people is race. I said, I'm not comfortable talking about race at work. And she said, no problem. Just, just say your own, just say so at the retreat. And so I was like, cool. So I went to the retreat and they everyone went around the table and pretty much recited the expected script. I call it, I call it a script. <laughs> the question was, please talk about your race in the context of your childhood, your adolescence, and your college years. And the question came from a hired facilitator from the local area who does these kinds of workshops and trainings. And so now we have two topics I don't want to talk about with my colleagues, my race and my childhood. (laughs) So everyone went around the room and I was the last person I said, "Mm, I'm uncomfortable talking about that at work. And it seemed to be okay that I said that. But then a little later in the session, the facilitator said, any white person who exhibits any kind of discomfort or resistance toward discussing their skin color, you might feel like they're uncomfortable. You might want to even comfort them a little bit, but don't because it's called white fragility and it's a power play. I was humiliated and I believe that was the intention. The intention was to humiliate me because it came from a professional facilitator there's a power imbalance there that this was done in front of all my colleagues from a supposed expert in this area. I believe it was an intentional humiliation that is more really more appropriate for, say, maybe, maybe be a very bad behavior modification program. or I liken it to something you do with dogs when you're training dogs because dogs feel shame. So you kind of shame them because dogs want your approval, and that's something that's used with dog training. <laughs> I felt like they were, shaming me in order to compel me to say what they wanted me to say instead of what I was really feeling, which was uncomfortable, which apparently is unacceptable f- for a white person to feel. And so that's really the incident when it became clear to me that I can no longer just abstain from these activities. I can't, like I, I am compelled to actively affirm the script Then over the course of the summer, the George Floyd murder happened and and all these other things, Smith amped up even more the initiatives and this document toward racial justice at Smith came out, a six-page document, quite uh, lengthy with a lot of links in it, links to a scholarly article, which it misquotes, by the way. I'm not sure how many people even read it, but I read it. And I was very disturbed by it because it seems to place even more demands on staff to go to sessions such as the one I went to, for example, or articulate their contributions to equity and inclusion. It's racially hostile, not only to white people, but also to people of color on campus. I believe this paternalistic kind of messaging to people of color that you need more help and you you are mar- so marginalized and oppressed and and white people are so powerful, and this whole script that if white people just confess to their white privilege, that somehow then that will help the people of color, which sets up a weird dependency dynamic that I'm also really appalled by. Placing more demands on staff who were now about to be furloughed, that's the other piece here, this was in the middle of a pandemic, it was so appalling to me. I I did make one last plea. I sent an email to several deans and people on the president's cabinet saying, this is a hostile work environment. I will not participate in this. Nobody responded. That was my Hail Mary email. And that's what pushed me over the edge too. Okay. Obviously they're not listening to me. Obviously they do respond to social media because they responded to the student involved in the incident of July 31st. So I thought, well, if that's what they respond to, then I guess that's what I have to do.
2: It's not surprising that people have been furloughed, given that all sorts of businesses, including colleges and universities, are hurting amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Although, interestingly, it seems like Smith College has money and energy for all kinds of new initiatives, even as they're furloughing people. I'm looking here at... It's called A Living Document for Community Comment by Floyd Chung, Vice President for Equity and Inclusion at Smith. It's called Toward Racial Justice at Smith. Publicly available, we're not telling secrets here, catalogs all these expensive efforts Smith College is doing to eradicate racism, even as it furloughs people who need money to buy groceries. We begin by acknowledging that our country was built on lands originally belonging to indigenous peoples, and with stolen labor performed by enslaved Africans and their descendants. Structural racial inequality is built into the very fabric of our nation. As a result, all people of color have historically suffered from the effects of white supremacy just goes on in this vein. uh, And there's this thing about, uh, we must reflect on America's role. The word reflect appears many, many times here. One gets the sense of these people who, of course, still all have their jobs, six-figure jobs, sitting around reflecting on how horrible they are, periodically taking time off to fire people who make close to minimum wage, I'm guessing. This is
1: maddening. (laughs) Try working there.
2: (laughs) Struggling to retain my neutral podcast host voice, but this perverse, pantomime of social justice. And it's also hypocritical. Do you feel that in your stomach when you go to work
1: at Smith College? <sighs> yep. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, like, why is nobody else really angry about this? But other people are. I have talked to people one-on-one and they're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is like really ridiculous. I can't believe we're doing this. But we cannot talk about it out loud. We cannot. It's truly the emperor has no clothes. We cannot state what to me is reality versus what you refer to as a pantomime i think that's perfect i mean to say it's hypocritical would be kind it's actually causing damage right now to human beings particularly the staff member to keep this narrative up and also to i believe in one of the president's emails she said white people are quote especially responsible for doing the work of dismantling racism well it happens to be that most of the low, most low, lowest-paid people on campus are white.
2: The video you made, which a lot of people have seen, we played a snippet of it at the beginning. What reaction have you gotten?
1: When I first posted it, I I tagged the college. And so the first, I think the first night I posted it, it was all thumbs down and <laughs> negative. She's a Karen. She, this is white <laughs> supremacist. How can a racist like this be working at Smith College? So on and so forth, and then slowly it turned, and suddenly, I had over a thousand subscribers and it was so many thumbs up and the comments were so supportive and Thank you so much for saying this out loud, for saying what so many of us can 't because we 're afraid and this is part of the problem this this atmosphere of like severe intimidation that if you speak out, you are going to lose your job and I did get an official response. Well, I don't believe she was responding to me personally. (laughs) She sent a message out to the community about the video and the message and that my behavior is protected by the National Labor Relations Act, which it is. But I took that as code for we would fire her, but we can't. And I actually responded to her letter. I made another video responding to her. I took it as an invitation for discussion. So perhaps she will respond to me.
2: Well, you're more idealistic than me because um, so the administration there seems long gone. And for those who are interested in subscribing to your YouTube account, it's called Smith College Big Dig. One of the reasons I called you and I wanted to have you on the podcast is you're you're pretty mild-mannered. And even during this conversation, I think I've gotten a lot more heated than you. Is it tough to maintain your, your social composure when you have to deal with all this stuff? Uh,
1: you have... <laughs> You have no idea how irate I get. I just, with my friends, I just go on rants. And I I think people are probably like, gosh, you know, even my mom is like, you know, other people are able to just go along with this stuff and you can't. And I just, sometimes I feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me that I can't go on with this. This is, must be like a deficit of some sort <laughs> or I'm oversensitive. So I don't know why I'm able to maintain my composure, I guess, because I feel like Going with the irate, if I let myself go there, that it can have the potential to be divisive and turn people away versus inviting discussion. Because I I really believe that we have a, a lot in common here and that this whole narrative that we're creating, that it's just so divisive. I don't like it. (laughs) I hate it. (laughs) And I I want us to talk more.
2: (laughs) I remember I Googled you because I was trying to get your contact information. And one of the first hits that came up, it identified you as coming from New Hampshire. And I think it said that your your parents owned a restaurant.
1: Yes. Yes. I grew up with working class parents.
2: Do you think that one of the reasons that you have resisted this gaslighting, and you were the one at Smith to speak up, is that you're an alumnus, so from an educational point of view, you're part of the elite. But on the other hand, in terms of your upbringing, you have one foot in real life, and you haven't spent your entire life with soccer mums who all use the latest hashtags. Do you think having at least some background, some kind of working class background aspect to a person, that that helps insulate them from a lot of this cultishness that has taken over upper middle class academic life?
1: Yeah, I think it helps. Academia is very new to me. I was a librarian at the Brooklyn Public Library, which is about as diverse, I can't think of a more diverse organization or clientele. People coming from working class background, I, I ha- hate to say it, but I feel like they have more developed bullshit detectors. <laughs> Can I say that on here? Oh, yeah. I think it's probably pretty much on a par with a lot of other working class people. I've only been in academia for the past three years, and I am appalled. I am absolutely appalled.
2: <laughs> and a lot of people talk about critical race theory, and they talk about all these rarefied things and intersectionality. I responded to the story you're telling in a lot more basic way. When i was reading the words that kathleen mccartney and her subordinates were putting into this these messages to the university community kicking workers under the bus they sound like snobs like they sound like rich privileged snobs who are just appalled that people don't know as much about hashtag social justice as they do
1: there's a lot of posturing going on there's a lot of the white savior stuff in my opinion I went to a workshop and I was just appalled. I was inside of literal Twitter feed. That's what I felt like. The term I use is virtue signaling, like letting other people know, well, I'm in this club and I'm I'm on the know and kind of separating yourself from other people who don't know the latest speech or language. This is so divisive. It's like putting up wall upon wall upon wall. And it really bothers me. If Smith wants to start having authentic conversations and talk about equity and inclusion, then it really should start with an honest reconciliation of what occurred on July 31st, 2018, and clear the names of the individuals involved and hold the student accountable for what I believe is harassing behavior that continues to this day.
2: Jody Shaw, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast.